If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Just a quick warning. This podcast series contains discussions about crime, trauma, sexual abuse, drug use, and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Today we have a remarkable guest joining us on the sticker. Good friend of mine, Ron Isherwood. Rod's journey is a testament to the power of transformation from tumultuous past associated with the Painter and Dockers Union in Melbourne to a life dedicated helping others through his organisation, The Truth About Addiction. Ron's story is one of resilience, redemption and the pursuit of greater purpose. Ron Isherwood, welcome to the sticker. Yeah, thanks, Russell. Thanks for having me, mate. That's it. Always a pleasure having you, Ron. You are a, a pillar of knowledge and an inspiration to many, including myself. Yeah, thank you. Kind words. <laughs> yeah. Life was uh, marked by violence, aggression, and crime. You know, let's let's kick off where it all started, and, and you know, what was it like growing up? It starts off in Melbourne, Victoria, in a little town called Fitzroy, a little suburb called Fitzroy, which was slums. Beside our house was an iron foundry. Across the road was made potato chips. Like it was just factories, all factories. And let's put it bluntly, your old man was a pretty well known gangster back then, wasn't he? Yeah, he was he was part of the painters and dockers union. Can you explain to people what the painters and dockers what it stood for and what it was about? It was a federation of waterside workers who basically maintained the ships that came into the into Australia that because in the old days before containers Everything came in on pallets and the wharfies would unload them, but they'd come to the painters and dockers and before they got unloaded and they'd get raided basically. Mm. And plus they'll rot. So it was, it was organised crime basically, wasn't <clears> it? It was organised crime. And if you were a paying member, which you did, you had to pay to join the union, mm. but you had to be born into it too. Mm. Joe Blow couldn't turn yeah, up. Irish Catholic. Being Irish Catholic was part of it too, wasn't it? Basically, yeah. Irish Catholic descent. It was basically it was all Aussies, yeah. white Aussies, and it was always family mm. or friends of the family. You've grown up together. Someone vouched for you. Yeah, it was a system that worked on. If you weren't introduced, you hear it said about being a made man. I guess that's similar to the same as the mafia had that to be a made man. You had to, you had to be born into it. Mm. If somebody put you into it and you turned out to be no good. Then the, the repercussions were on them, yeah. Yeah, the consequences went back to those people. Your dad was a boxer, well-known boxer. Yeah, light heavyweight champion, a big man, stature, always very fit, broke, broke horses, rode rodeo, buck jump riding, broke race horses. Everything to do with my old man was physical. Mm. Everything was physical. Became a good boxing trainer, had some good fighters, but he was also, there was two sides to him. That's what the world seen, the public seen, that side of it. Then there was the other side of him that was a complete animal where he'd bash my mother. My mum was five foot tall, mm. tiny little woman, tiny little woman, and he'd bash her and she'd leave him. And he'd track her down, then he'd bash her mum and dad and her brothers and her sisters and her, her sister's husband and just take her back and tell her if she ever left, she's going to kill her. Growing up in that, man, like a kid is... That's well documented. A kid's growth is stunted by fear. Did you grow up with much fear in your 
my whole life was fear. I was addicted to fear. Mm. That was my first drug of choice. Fear, everything was fear. Fear of the unknown. I guess that's why, in some ways, I lashed out with physical violence myself, because intergenerational. Yeah, and and it was normal. My dad never drank, so I can't even use that excuse that he was an alcoholic and that he mm. didn't know what he was doing. Mm. He was fully conscious at all times. He carried a fireman's axe under his front seat mm. of his FJ Holden. And I'm talking, that's back in the very early 60s. That's the axe with the big point on the end mm. of it. Yeah. He carried that. He was wrapped. That was his favorite to- tool, his mm. favorite weapon, his favorite toy. When I was a kid, everybody carried crowbars in their cars because that's what they used to beat each other on the head with, mm. crowbars. And, and then there was the guns, of course. Guns, knives were not a real big thing with the Aussies. The Aussie blokes weren't mm. big on knives. They punched on, they, they hit you on the head with a house brick or something like that. They jumped on your head. But as a kid, I remember you didn't kick them when they were down. You mm. told them to get back up. Unless it was someone that you were going out to harm, then then they that's when the weapons came out, the guns. And those days, guns were prolific in my house. By the age of 16, you shot a man. It was basically over a game of pool. Mm-hmm. Sounds crazy, but... And, yeah, the guy played snooker with a mate of mine for a dollar. He might make one. He said double enough, and my mate won. He said double enough, and <clears throat> which made it four bucks. And my mate won, and the bloke said, fuck off, idiot. I'm mm. not paying you. And my mate came to me and said, he, he just lashed me. And in those days, there used to be a saying, if you lash a lag. Yeah. And I said, well, you're going to have to go downstairs and punch on with him and get the money. And they went downstairs and I grabbed the 45, my old man's gun from behind the counter. Cannon. Cannon. Yeah. It was that, was that my old man's two-up game. And anyway, the bloke went downstairs. They punched on. He was getting over my mate. And this bloke was an older guy. He'd, come, he'd done prison. I looked up to him. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I smacked the guy of the 45 and he ran down the street and he started yelling out, I know where you live, I'm going to knock you and your family. And I let go a couple of shots at him and he got away and blah, blah, blah. And then I went back and said to the old man, oh, this is what happened. He said, you got to go and fix it. Jumped in the car. We went looking for him and found him and his mates walking down the street and they got shot. They got mm. shot in the legs. <clears throat> and when the old man was you trying shoot to find someone them, in a, you shoot someone in a leg with a 45, you'll take half their fucking leg off. Yeah, actually, he was shot with a shotgun, which was even oh, okay. worse. Yeah, well. With the SGs, which was the nine pellets. Yeah. Yeah, and then the old man went around the block to try and come back and get the, get the bodies. And he said to me, you sure they you sure they got shot? I said, shot him in the legs. And he said, you fucking what? You don't shoot people in the legs. And it abused me for shooting the guy in the legs. Well, so what he was saying, he was saying you should have shot him in the head. You should have killed him. Yeah. Because dead men don't, don't give tell you up. Them. And six months later, I got arrested on a shootout with the police with some other men. And the guy that was with me, the guy that it, it, the guys had got shot for, Gave me up on that shooting mm. as well. So the old man was right in some ways because then those guys came into the courthouse and pointed me out in front of the in front of the lineup, and I got a charge with the attempted murder of those two. How old were you then? Six, I was just turned 17. I was 16 so, when they got shot, and I was 17 on the shootout of the coppers. Did you go to adult prison? Yeah. yeah. I went straight to Pentridge. Yeah. I went straight to Pentridge on remand. What was that like in them days? It was horrific. You showered in a yard with 30 men. There was no doors. There was one shower. The first three got a warm shower. The rest got cold showers. You shit and pissed in toilet in the open yard. There's two toilets. All the prisoners could watch you piss and shit. The screws sat on a tower above you and they watched right into the yard. They watched you go to the toilet. Guys had sex in front of the screws, in front of the other crims in the yard. Mm. There was Nothing was sacred those days. And homosexuality was pretty prolific in them days, wasn't it? I remember I got the tail end of it towards 80, 84. I went to 
prison it was being faded out, although it still happened. Because mm. one of the most common questions people ask when you say you've done 23 years jail, I go, did you get up to it? And you go, not, not necessarily. Because yeah. yeah. prison doesn't make you gay. Well, not that it's a bad thing, but it doesn't make you, you gay, does it? No, it's common knowledge. My last sentence was eight years, and by the time I went back in 2002, they had women prison officers and women mm. Social workers. And they didn't have them back in the day, no? Never. No. There was no women in the prison in the 70s. Mm. No women. The only women in the 70s would be, right through the 70s, the only women you would see in prison were the nurses, mm. and they were locked behind steel cages, and like, there was no women in the prison system. And as I said, when I came back in 2002, it was quite horrific because yeah. everyone was rooting everyone in there. Yeah, it was a free-for-all. I've got, I've got three or four blokes I know that married. Yeah. Screw it. Funny thing, that isn't it? People don't understand that. I remember I ended up in a relationship with an education coordinator at, in a jail in Queensland, and she just told me the stats. There's 1,500 blokes here in this jail. One of them's going to appeal to me, and it just happens to be you. Yeah, exactly. I've seen it happen so many times. Yeah. Let's talk about what happened with the shooting at police. What was the final result? The guy that was actually had the paraffin wax test and came back with the gunpowder on his hands. He ended up by putting his hand up and pleading guilty to the mm. shooting of the police. The other guys that got shot, they actually jumped in. They were, they were crims. Mm. They'd had to think about what they'd done about pointing me out in the lineup and writing statements. They changed their evidence. Do you reckon someone helped them think about it? Somebody may have. Somebody <laughs> may have had a chat to them and, and, and just told them that the bloke that shot him was taller and darker. Yeah. But yeah, so I got found not guilty of all those charges mm. and was sentenced to three years. And I was sent back to a youth training centre. Yeah. From prison, because the judge just said, he's a little boy. Well, he's, mm. The crimes he was charged with are horrific, but he still should never have been put into a men's prison. Yeah, what was their, what was their reasoning for that? Because of the seriousness of the crime? They said seriousness of the crime, but it was more family. Because mm. so, your association, because your dad, yeah. My dad and painters and dockers and all that stuff. But we all know that you can't go around shooting at the coppers. Mm. Don't matter who you are, even today. No. You shoot the coppers, you just sign your death warrant. Yeah, you know? 100%. There's going to be square-ups around. Yeah. Tell me about this. What happened from there? Like you started getting in trouble, you ended up in jail in New South Wales. Yeah. You come like, a regular up this way. Yeah. What was the reason for even coming up here? Get away from the old man? It, no, the old man moved up here. Did he? He moved up here after I went to jail. He'd lost he'd lost his trigger. Yeah. My old man never pulled the trigger ever in his life. You know, he used to always, why bark when you own a dog? Mm. So he had some other idiot. My mum used to cry and say, he's not worth going to jail for. Stop doing things for him. So he came up here to Sydney while I was in the boys' home. In 1972, he came up. I got out of jail in May 73, came up to Sydney, went straight to the waterside workers up in Belmain and started running around with all the blokes from Erskineville. Terry Ball, he was a boxer. I was still boxing all the time. And so we just became thieves and I was on the drink those days. I'd never taken a drug. I'd never taken a drug in my life except for what they gave me in jail. They put me on Ligactyl, mm. which... Ligactyl is a drug for schizophrenics just to fucking slow them up. Yeah, we called it the liquid lobotomy. Mm. After I got to Sydney, I just went back to crime. We used to do a lot of following salesmen, mm. the travelling salesmen, because everything used to get delivered. Like all the watches, all the jewellery would have to get driven from the jewellery manufacturer, the watch wholesaler, to the jewellery shop. Mm. And when he'd take the bag in to sell the jewellery at one of the shops, we'd break into his car, steal all the rest of the mm. jewellery that was there. That mm. was our go. And when I came to Sydney, it was a whole new ball game because in Melbourne, the cops and the robbers didn't associate that much, mm. not that I knew of, not where I grew up mm. anyway. And when I got to Sydney, it was different. They drank together. 
They went to the nightclubs together. Coppers are uh, uh, drinking with the people that they're actually investigating and chasing. Yeah, hundred percent. The coppers and the crims were, and I got approached by the armed hold-up squad, and they said, "Oh, you're a pretty willing bloke. We got good mail from you from Melbourne. We'll tell you what stick-ups to do, and we'll tell you where the money is, who's armed, what's." It. Mm. No, I said no. I just said no. One day I'll come out of the bank with me gun in my hand. I said, "You'll blow my head off." Exactly. Yeah. Dylan deals with the devil. Yep. And what? So what sort of? What was your first experience in prison here in New South Wales? Uh, it's quite ironic. I was in Ten Wing with my father. Mm, <laughs> ten Wing. In ten out of, uh, Long Bay Prison. Yeah. Long Bay Prison at the mm. MRP. And Schubert was the Lynch, wing officer. Yeah, Schubert. He went on to become one of the big bosses up there. Yeah, had a classification. And Schubert, yeah. And <laughs> it's ironic to think that you're sharing a prison cell with your father, like. Mm. And the old man got bail and I stayed there for a little while and I did a lagging up there. And I just, by that time, my father and my relationship was very soured. And my old man hated two things. He hated drug addicts and he hated tattoos. Mm. Um, I'd started getting some tattoos and um, my mum passed away in 1974. And within two months after my mum passing away, I had a needle in my arm and I was using heroin. Mm. And it was all downhill from then. As soon as I started using heroin, I got on that cycle that most people get on in, a, in jail, pump up, get fit, get out, have a shot. And it got to a stage where I'd say, remind for sentence. Mm. I'd get out. I'd get picked up at the gate by one of the blokes who I'd steered him into somebody who was selling dope. Mm. When, they, when they'd get released, mm. you steer your mate, one of your mates who's selling out mm. there and he gives him a start. And mm. So he picks you up at the gate and he's got a shot for you and a girl. And you go on your merry way, and if you last six months, you're like king of the kids. They, yeah. You're very impressive, you last six months. Cool. <clears throat> and people, I remember a mate of mine ringing me from jail, and I was saying, to him, I'm having a good run. I've been out a year, and my sister-in-law picked up, and she goes, what the fuck do you mean by having a good run? Because mm. the expectation is you're going back. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. You knew you were going back. And I remember I got pinched. With a, a bloke, a mate of mine, good bloke, I like him. I don't know where he is these days. We got pinched at Coogee in a hotel by the armed hold-up squad. And it's was, it was, it was quite funny because this was getting close to the end of my using. And I, I'd got up, I'd woken up early and I'd got up and I had a shot. Mm. So I'm sitting on the end of the bed stone, the door gets kicked in, it's the armed hold-up squad. Mm. They're like, where's your guns, where's your guns? And Larry's syringe was sitting on the bench. Mm. He hadn't had his shot because he was still asleep and I'd mixed up in the guiding halves and put the mm. half on the thing. Larry's got woken up. Well, he never got his shot. So we're sitting in the cells at Redfern and I thought, thank God I'm pinched. Mm. I was actually glad to get pinched because we knew we'd been wanted. We, they'd been following us in helicopters the day before. Mm. We knew that we were off. We were in a stolen car. We changed plates and all the mm. normal stuff you're doing. There's a lot goes with that. Let's talk about that because I really like to hit this message home with kids. The paranoia that fear that's involved in all of that sort of stuff. Talk, how, what were you feeling when you, mate, horrible feeling that helicopter's following you? Yeah. Every time a car turned around, you thought you were going to get pinched. Mm. Every time someone knocked on the door, you thought it was the coppers. <clears throat> Every time someone looked at you sideways, you've seen the same person twice in the day, mm. you thought you were off. Yeah. That's a fear it's just the worst life, feeling in the it? world. Yeah. And when I escaped from prison and, and – and I was only out for 30 days and I was full-blown junkie by that stage. It was horrific being an escapee and I started using Ritalin, which is a… ADD drug. Yeah, ADD drug, okay. which is a pseudoephedrine. Mm. I don't know about you guys. I'm a heroin addict and yeah, when I'm on heroin, matter. I don't care. But when I'm on, when I'm on a pseudoephedrine, I'm glad ice wasn't around. 
Everything's exaggerated in Excel. Yeah. So mad. And I got arrested in King's Cross, and the cop that pinched me, I'll never forget his name was Grace. He was part of the consorters. And I was laying on the ground. They'd been chasing me. I'd smashed through a window, had cuts all over me. And he said, what are we going to effing do with you? And I said, put the gun in my head and shoot me. Mm. I wasn't being a tough guy. I really meant it. Mm. Just knocked me, put me out of my misery. And they felt they did. They felt that sorry for me. They just picked me up, put me in the police car, and took me up to the St. Vincent's Hospital. Mm. I was escaping from prison. I'd cut myself to pieces. And I just seen that copper's face that day. It was, it was not long after that I went to a rehab. Mm. I got bailed to the rehab from prison. And that's where my journey in recovery started in 1981. And it's been a hell of a journey. It's mm. been a, an incredible journey. And that's the thing that I love talking about now these days is that we do recover. We can change our ways and we have to change our play places, play things. I did really well for 20 years. I never got into trouble for 20 years, but I still dabbled back in, in with the association with the old crims yeah. and they were all my mates still and had that attitude like, oh, they're still my mates and all that. And yeah, by 2002, I was 16 years clean. But you achieved a lot. You were very successful in business, had families. You'd lived in yeah. America for a while. I guess you'd obtained some material possessions, like you, you're a car man. You're known for yeah. your taste in really nice cars. You're rebuilding and re the Corvettes. And yeah, I've always I've played with cars since I was 12 years of age. But I also went to the jewelry industry, which, <clears throat> whether it was by luck or by some power greater than myself, I've always been blessed. I am blessed. I believe I'm blessed. I went to the jewelry trade in 1986 when I got clean. And I used to come home and I used to say to my ex-wife, my wife at that time, you can't make this much money being a criminal. Mm. We were selling so much gold. We were selling, and it was all cash those days. We were selling it through the trading post. It was long before the internet. Mm. And I was going to every butcher, panel beating shop, brothel, massage parlor, because it was all cash. Yeah. And I was just selling gold chain. And, that, and the gold chain era had come in where everyone wanted big chains. Yeah. And I'm also, <clears throat> I grew up in the Greeks and all the Greeks wanted diamonds and everyone wanted a one carat diamond. These days it's three carats. It's mm. gone up again. But so I always, I was, I could always make money, but I couldn't let go of the fact that I was Ron the Crim. I couldn't let go of that. I, it's the old adage, a stolen feast hates but and I bought one to quote the great Hawkeye. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, mate. Yeah. I just didn't think I could be anything else. I always thought I was just Ron the Crim. I got my rocks off by being a successful criminal in my mm. brain. You know, in my own head, I was a legend. Yeah, there you go. And as you said, I've lived all around the world and I've done all these things. But, oh, man, was it worth it? No. The amount of pain and suffering that I must have caused to the people that loved me, even not in active addiction, the women, I had lots of ex-wives say to me, I fell in love with you, but I fell in love with you, mm. not what you do. Mm. And they, a lot of my women didn't know what I did. They just thought I was a successful businessman. But when they live with you for two or three years, they start to notice that there's something quite not right. And that's something that's not quite right is spiritual connection. Because I couldn't get spiritually connected because I didn't know when I was going to get pinched. Yeah. And there's that thing when you're doing crime, you do keep people at it. Like I know for myself, there's always that how committed can you be because you don't want to get hurt and you don't want to hurt them. Yep. So you don't want to be you don't want to be a hundred percent deep into a relationship because you want to be in a position where you're going to let it go if need be. Where you can drop it and walk away. That famous scene from Heat. Yeah. Where he says you got to be prepared to drop walk everything away. and walk away. I was prepared to drop everything and walk away until 2002. 
And when I got arrested in 2002, my friends overseas just all said to me, you're going to get a big lagging for this, walk away. Mm. We just Because I got out on bail and they said, we can send you to Paris, we can send you anywhere in the world you want to go and live. Just go and live there. We'll look after everything, you'll get sweet. Mm. <clears throat> Give it 10 or 15 years, then come back and your case will be settled. And I had a, at that stage, I had a six-year-old and I had 21-year-old twin daughters and I had a son and I just couldn't do it. I just said, I can't do it. I can't not see my kids. Mm. That was the reason. And I just said, I can't do it anymore. And I just don't want to do it anymore. And something happened. And an incredible ch- amount of change happened. It just, I had a spiritual awakening. It was like, not in a religious way, in a personal honesty way. It was like, why do you need to do this to make yourself feel whole? And I realized that I was living a lie. I was living a lie. All these, my whole life was a lie up until no matter mm. how much I'd achieved. And, and I'd done a lot of good stuff. And I've helped a lot of people. From 86 to 2002, I still helped What's a lot that? of people. Yeah. yeah. But after that, getting arrested in 2002, I reassessed everything about myself and everything I wanted to do and what I wanted to achieve in life. And I started to become grateful because mm. before that, I wasn't grateful because you hear the saying, easy come, easy go. People think that's a joke. Mm. It's, it's the truth. Mm. So you had it all. You had beautiful homes, beautiful cars and all that stuff that people, especially young people, think is going to make them happy. Mm. And how were you feeling? I think it was five months before I got arrested. I was laying in bed. I was Boxing Day. I'll never forget it. Boxing Day, 2001, in a waterfront mansion, looking out over the water, looking at the my boats and my cars in the garages and all that stuff. And it's a true story. And I had my two cats laying on the bed watching the Boxing Day cricket. Mm. And I'd lay in there thinking, I don't care if I don't wake up tomorrow. I was emotionally bankrupt. And you had no purpose, it'd be fair to say? I had no purpose. I knew that. I was in the middle of doing a a major crime. My heart knew that I shouldn't have been doing it. I also knew that we were off. Mm. I knew that we were off. I'd already seen the federal coppers follow me. But my ego told me that, ah, you've got enough money. You'll be able to pay your way out of this if you do get pinched. Mm. You've said nothing to anybody. No one knows what's really going on. And I really believed that I was smarter than they were and all that sort of bullshit. I really had this incredible ego that I'd outsmart them, I'd, I'd outpay them. I'd, I'd pay for the best barristers. And I did pay for the best barristers. I spent over $600,000 on legal fees hmm. and got 18 years. Um, well, <clears throat> do you mind if I ask you, what was the actual pinch? Conspiracy to import cocaine into Australia. And the amount? 12 kilos. Yeah. <clears throat> That'll do it. Yeah. Especially Queensland, ah. Yeah, and that's what they arrested me at Byron Bay, but they took me back to Queensland. Yeah. And they did that on – see, I'd been out of touch. I'd been in trouble for 20 years. I knew nothing about technology. I didn't know about phone taps. I didn't know. I didn't understand a lot of this mm. new technology. And yeah, and they took me back to Queensland because the laws in Queensland are a lot easier to get stuff through. Mm. I had three co-accused who pleaded. We all pleaded. Four of us pleaded not guilty. One pleaded guilty. The three people under me all got found not guilty mm. because I said that we're bringing gemstones, and the jury believed that they thought they were gemstones and that I'd tricked my mates, mm. which. Is neither here nor there, whether they knew or not, they got found not guilty. They didn't know. God bless them. Yeah, God bless them. And that's what I said when I got found guilty and I was downstairs and Terry O'Gorman came down and said, I'm so sorry. And I still, by that time I had that mentality, us against them. I said, they didn't win. Mm. He said, what? I said, they didn't win. I said, I got three mates going home. Mm. I said, no, I'm appealing. Mm. I said, that was, a, my attitude was, we'll beat this in appeal. We, I actually thought I would beat it in appeal. That's funny how... Like it's especially people doing life. Everyone doing life sentence. They all think they can beat it. Mm. There's this thing that happens. I, it's so common. 
If someone gets pinched on murder, nearly every lifer I've ever come across thinks, when my appeal comes up, I'm going to beat it. And they, a lot of them spend 20 years trying to fight something they're good for. Mm. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I look, I fought mine uh, to 2006. Mm. I got sentenced in 2004. I pinched in 2002, got sentenced in 2004. In 2006, I lost my last appeal at the High Court of Australia. Mm. And I paid for, as I said, mm. I spent $680,000 in legal fees all mm. And I thought that I could pay my way out of it. And in retrospect, <clears throat> it's going to sound stupid. I'm glad that I didn't get found not guilty because I probably would have reoffended. Am I sorry that I went to jail? I'm sorry that I missed that I'm watching my daughters grow up. Mm. I'm sorry I missed that on my kids growing up. I lost a good woman who was a good person, the mm. girl that married me, the American girl that went back to America. Mm. She didn't deserve to have the life that she got with me. She never signed up for that. Yeah. She signed up to a mm. legitimate businessman who she was in love with. Yeah. She didn't deserve the lie of the thief. It's amazing she- how us crims have this ability to... Not letting people know nothing. Like it's, you think, because the coppers go, oh, you live with him, you must have known something. But we have this amazing ability to let them know nothing. Yeah. But my 20-year-old daughters, they were twin daughters, when I got arrested, one of my daughters yelled out, are you serious? My, all my father does is help people. Mm. This is so wrong. You know, mm. she was adamant that they'd made a giant mistake mm. because I lived at, I wasn't on the street corner selling dope to some poor guy for 50 bucks. Mm. I was involved in organised crime to where you know, conversations going to Brazil and having to talk to somebody and then coming back and waiting for something to come in. And I, as I said, and I sincerely, going to prison has freed me enough to be who I am today. It's really released me. Hmm. I don't want to be a criminal anymore. I don't want to be involved. I don't want to hang out with the criminals. I don't want to quick quit. I don't want an easy fix. Mm. I don't want to talk shit. I don't want to harm people. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to sell drugs. I don't want to be involved with anybody who's doing dope. I don't. No. I don't either way, I don't. Even people. I, I'm not. testament that I know. I spend time with you, and I, I can assure people that. And I'm the same. Mm. We've got a crew of us that hang out with each other, and we're all the same. We just yeah. don't associate. We don't want to. We don't. We're not involved in crim talk or anything like yeah. that. I'm over it. It's, mm. it's, it was a lie. I wrote a book called The Liar Crime, Born to the Liar Crime. Can you just give us a look at the book? This is Ron's book, A Lie of Crime. That's riveting reading, I can assure you. Just quick, let's give that a plug. How do people get hold of that? Uh, go into ron at thetruthaboutaddiction.com. That's my website. We run a drug rehabilitation centre through that as well. Mm. And uh, you just buy it straight off the it's on ebook and it's in the physical book. We'll send it to you. If you buy it and you can write down you want, Signed to somebody, I'll sign it to whoever wants it, yeah. That's good. And, and what about your socials, Ron? Yeah, my socials, um, I'm on Instagram, Facebook. It's all the truth about addiction or Ron Isherwood. They're, both of them come to the same place. And we're on Spotify, YouTube, because we've done, I think, up to 89 podcasts now. Yeah. And a lot of my podcasts, all my podcasts are about recovery. There's a couple of throw-ins there. Like there's Johnny Lewis who... No, how love, can you so know Johnny Lewis? I, I put Johnny in there. And I'll, I'll do a few more people soon that, that it's just good people doing good things because mm. we have a community these days, so yourself, there's a bunch of us now that are sincerely, genuinely trying to carry a message of hope mm. to people and love and recovery. And I'm not trying to get on the good books to go to heaven. I don't even know if there's such a place. Mm. You know, that's not why, My motivation is not that. My motivation is to leave a legacy in my own heart that, okay, you made a lot of mistakes when you're a young fella, but you've also done a lot of good. It feels you know? good. Yeah. It feels good. Well, let's talk about... In prison, because you went to prison and you it's in prison where you found your purpose. 
Yeah, I went to prison, as I said, in 2004. I got sentenced to 18 years, and I'm a federal prison, so you serve half of that. And I got into jail, and when I got to jail, there was no Narcotics Anonymous literature, no AA literature. There was no help for anybody in there. And I went to the general manager, and I said, mate, you've got no literature here. And he said, I can't get a budget to buy any. And I said, what if I donate it? And he was like, what? Well, I have to get it checked by Intel to make sure you're not smuggling oh. drugs in. And I said, mate, you can do what you like with it. I get it checked by Intel. So I got NA to serve, NA service office in Sydney to send all the books up to Sydney, up to Queensland, and oh. so we got NA literature, and we got basic texts in, step work and guides, and other literature. Then I started to get H and I people coming in from outside doing hospital institution meetings. After about two years of being at R and R, which is the remand centre, oh, yeah. Arthur Gorry Correctional Centre, they moved me across to Woodford, and I spent five four years at Woodford, which was they really didn't. They weren't very helpful with it. They were very much against the NA stuff. They were very much against the recovering drug addict what, syndrome. What do you think, what do you think that – I struggle with Queensland Corrective Service. I really fucking struggle with them because they're just so anti-progress. But what do you think the reason why that is? I think – this is going to sound horrible – because it's interbred. Mm. It's like us with crime. Mm. Ours is usually generational. Mm-hmm. A lot of the screws are generational screws. Mm. And it's come through this system. It's come from their grandfather. Yeah. All screws are scrums. Come from their dad. All yeah. screws are all crims are scum. And then what happened was I, I got my co-accused. They wouldn't let me go in the same jail as him. The guy that pleaded guilty because there was some issue there. So what happens was he was at Burrell and Correctional Centre, which was run by Circo, which is a private, private company. Time. And I he got moved to a farm, and I got put moved across to. Rowland Correctional Centre, and the general manager there believed in rehabilitation. I don't know if it's true or not, but I believe that he had some connection with recovery somewhere, whether it was mm. a family member, or he's had a relationship with an alcoholic or an addict mm. somewhere. And he pulled me in and he said to me, I've heard really good stuff about you. He said, I have a dream of opening a rehab in prison. Mm-hmm. Can it be done? And I said, yeah, of course it can. He said, what do we need to do? And I told him, I said, we need a unit away from everybody else. There can't be any other prisoner coming to our unit. We need to cook our own food, otherwise we'll smuggle the dope in through the kitchen. Mm. We cannot have visits in the same area, otherwise we'll get the dope from the other mm. crims. I said, we can't have any association with the other crims. <clears throat> and he said, okay, i got just a place. He gave us a unit, got down the end of the jail. Our food was delivered to us. We cooked all our own food. Our visits were in a different area where we could have contact visits and even have sex with our girls mm. and like on the side sort of thing. So there's a lot a of- reason to get clean. There's a lot of benefits to getting clean because mm. you ate good food, you trained, mm. and you weren't hanging out with a bunch of idiots. Mm. And everyone was like- I was lucky enough that there was a guy called Gilly. Anyone who listens to this that knows anything about Queen, Queensland yeah. prisons, he was a fairly tough guy, and he really wanted to get clean. And Gilly said, "I'm going to, I'm coming in with you, and I'm going to be your not minder, but taking persuader, care of, taking care of business, persuader. Yeah, because I'm an old man, and they don't know me, but they know him. He'd spent his, he'd spent yeah. 24 years in prison up there, and he'd been charged a couple of murders in there, yeah. and found guilty of some of that." Yeah. So he became my left-hand man, and but he really wanted to stay clean, and he's really intelligent. He's mm. super intelligent. If people just underestimate him to the to pieces. Mm. So we started doing yoga. I got yoga teachers to come in from outside. I got lots of people to come in from Narcotics Anonymous, and we started doing H&I meetings in the prison. We ran, I, ran, I wrote a process and procedure for the prison, and we had a success rate. We had 30 guys in that unit. So you're, would, you're, you were living in your purpose. Yeah, and- the reward was phenomenal. And people would come and visit me and they'd say, how come you're so happy? And I'd say, because I'm free. And they'd say, what do you mean free? I'd say, well, I'm free from myself. I'm free from fear. I'm free from lies. 
Mm. I'm free from the bullshit. I don't have to pretend to be somebody anymore. And yeah, and it was just this beautiful thing. We've got friends who are still clean today because of that unit. Mm. It's 20 years later, nearly. I've got yeah. friends who are 15, 16 years clean, all because of that unit. And not everybody got clean, but a lot of them got. There's a couple of guys who, who OD'd later on, but they got five or six good years mm. of going to meetings and getting clean and having good lives. And they were the same guys that were on that, that merry-go-round that went yeah. in and out. They, they got to create some memories. Yeah. There's one guy, he's passed away, his name was Scotty Keane, lovely guy. Love Scotty. His whole life was in and out of jail. Mm. And he used to stand up at meetings and say, this man here saved my life. Mm, how does that say, feel? And I say, it's quite, humi- it's quite humbling. And I say, no, I didn't. I just told you how to save your own life and you mm. started saving your own life because mm. I don't take responsibility for that stuff. Yeah. I just say, I'm just a messenger. Yep. I plant seeds, it's up to you whether to water them. Yeah. That went on for a year and a half. The GM got moved. The new GM came in. He was the head of security, oh. and he just shut the joint down. He put it in position. Put he put people in there that were going to use. That he knew we were going to use. They transferred Gilly out of the unit, so he'd lost the muscle. Then we started having fights in the unit, and guys getting heads jumped on, and certs coming in and locking mm. us down, and me getting put in the DU because I'd be the one there giving somebody CPR mm. <clears throat> when the cert would run in, the yeah. team would run in. I'd have blood all over me, and I'd be laying over the body, mm. pumping his chest, and trying to make him alive, so I'd always get locked up for... And it takes that one person and it takes us that one... And there is a lot of bad eggs in corrective services that just are hell-bent on no progress, on not allowing people to change, and they're hell-bent on traumatising people. Yeah. This is this message I like to get out. That's the thing that's got to change. This particular guy, he said to me about three or four months into this program, he said to me one day, he said, geez, you must be making some money out of this jail, Ron. And I started laughing. Mm because I'm a fairly cheeky prick. And he, I said to him, I said, you know what, mate? I said, in all the years I've done up here, I've only ever seen $100 bill. Mm. And guess what? I brought that in. I said, and guess what? I sent it out because there was nothing to buy. He just didn't know how to, didn't, he yeah. didn't know how to take that. I said, you've got, said, you got no money in your system. How can you make any yeah. money up here? A bit different than New South, eh? There's, oh, 100%. Fucking people with plenty of coin. Yeah. But okay, mate, so... I was talking about this at your book launch the other day about the day you got released after the eight years. Yeah, that was pretty horrific. They kicked me out. I went to. I, went, I was the first prisoner on the first truck. Me and I don't know. They must like the lifers and me because I guess I was doing eighteen years. They it was a truckload. The first bread van went there, and we got off this van at Gatton, and Gatton's in the middle of fucking nowhere. Middle of nowhere. Thornbury's are the hot. best. I'm telling you, the Thornbury family are the best things that come out the Gatton's. Boxing trainer family, beautiful people, but yeah, anyway. Yeah. They kicked me out at six o'clock in the morning. I had a check for $340, something like that, and a little bag with my letters, some clothes that didn't fit me, and they just threw me out the front. They didn't even care if I had anyone to pick me up, and I was horrified. I didn't know where, didn't even know which way to turn. Once they put me out the front of the Gatton, I didn't even know which way to turn to walk towards the highway. But I was lucky enough. I had a couple of mates turn up for me, guys from in recovery that I've been friends with for a long time. And mm. one guy in particular that I got, I helped get clean in jail. Yeah, he was there. He was parked out there in his new BMW, and they picked me up and they took me straight into straight into Brisbane and bought me a coffee. I've had a coffee for eight years. So cracking. So I went straight into speed mode, mm. and they gave me an iPhone which I'd never heard of. And they put me on a thing called Facebook and that phone never stopped beeping for 24 hours. I wanted to smash it. Mm. I didn't know how to work it. So they, we went from there, we went and had a feed, went to parole board and went straight to Sydney and yeah, lo and behold. So you got your parole in New South, did you? Yes, yeah, I got my parole in New South. I, well, I had to go to New South because I needed to come down here and I, my kids were down here, my eldest kids. Mm. 
I need to get down there and get near my kids and I also need to be near my support system of, of recovery. And plus, I've been in the jewellery trade since 1986 in Sydney and in Queensland. The Pride Board were going to make it impossible. They, they tried to make it impossible. They said, you can't go back in the jewellery industry. You can't, back, can't go back and work in drug and alcohol. And I was quite angry. And I said, the biggest pack of fucking rats at Queensland Parole Board when it mm -hmm. comes to helping people yep. and allowing them to get on and, and do, they knock people back from places where they should be living and they support people and they knock them back from jobs that, it, and, and they don't, they, with no justification. And the, the bottom line was another reason I came to Sydney because I, <clears throat> I had a really good sponsor, like someone that said, I'm going come and live at their house. Yeah. And it was quite funny because the first day the parole board came, to do a house visit, it was in, in Sylvania Waters in a multi-million dollar mansion oh. on the water yeah. at my mate's place. And they walked in and looked around my mate's house and went like, oh, my God, how, how can you be living in this house? I said, what do you mean? They said, we usually go to people that have got nothing. Yeah, draw it. Yeah, we usually go to people who have got nothing. You're living in this multi-million dollar mansion. Mm. And I started laughing. I said, I was a multi-millionaire before I went to jail. Mm. I said, I wasn't on the dole. Mm. I said, now you're trying to make me go on the dole, which they were. Yeah. They made me go on the dole for nine months, eight mm. months, I think it was. I couldn't live on it. Mm. It was horrific. It was so humiliating. Mm. I don't even and know. Here it was you are, much. you're wanting to work in a field that you know yep. that you got experience in and they wouldn't allow you. Nope. They said, no, you can't do it. And then there is a higher power of some sort. And they said, we're going to fix you up. They were quite angry at me. And they said, we're going to send you to the probation and parole's head psychiatrist, psychologist. <clears throat> because you won't be able to get a thing past him. You, he's going to sort you out. Mm. And I said, okay, give me him. And they wrote down Patrick Shannon and they gave me the card and I smiled to myself. And the story is I 12-step Patrick Shannon. When you say 12-step, you helped him get recovery. I'd, I'd helped him get recovery. I, yeah. I was his mentor yeah. into recovery 25 years before. That. Mm. And I rang Paddy out and I said, hey, Patrick, Ronnie Sherwood, hello, mate, how are you? I said, stop. This is a call from probation and parole. I said, I've got to come and see you. Where are you? I said, I'm at Rockdale. He said, I'm at San Susie. Come to my joint. I went straight to his house and long story short, they did me a favour again. Like oh. Paddy, Paddy was my support system. My wife was... My wife, who's now, I just started dating and started going out with her. Her family lived in Vietnam, and I said, I want to go to Vietnam and meet my wife. My wife's been here all her life, really. I said, but I want to meet her father because I want to marry his daughter. I'm old school. Oh. You go and see the father. So Patrick wrote a letter saying, I think it should be good for Mr. Isherwood's uh, parole to go and visit his fiance's father. So <laughs> next time I'm on a plane to Vietnam while I'm on parole. Mm. I came back. I said, I want to go to Sydney. Patrick wrote a letter. Mm. I think it'd be good for Mr. Richard's parole for him to go back to Queensland. Mm. So I went to Queensland. So there's a moral to the story. Good things always come back to you. Good things always come back to you. Everything I do and everything I have today is a direct result of helping somebody else. Yeah. That's the truth. It really is the truth. There's been a lot of people that have been a recipient of your knowledge and you live by the adage you can't what you keep what you got unless you give it away yep. and you do that in droves I think you live your life that way and, and I was hearing like in 1998 uh, I started hearing about your name I was, I was moved on the Gold Coast and the Sydney oh no a funny story I'll tell you so I go to what's that place up the cross where Hawkeye and that were yeah, and, uh, Salvation Army yeah. I, was, I went there and my <clears throat> mate's on work he's handing out clothes and that and He's Ron with the I Love Australia T-shirt on, camera around his neck, doing his best <clears throat> to not look like a crim, trying to blend in like a tourist. 
And I remember my saying to that bloke, he's the fucking real deal. But after that, so your name was coming up a lot in recovery circles. Greg Richards, God love him. And our dear friend Paul Douglas, who we recently lost, was speaking very highly of you. And we eventually got to meet and, and we've formed a, a long time, a long friendship. And it's, yeah. You're a blessing to many, Ron. You're a blessing to many. And you give your knowledge freely, seeing you with... And it doesn't matter. It's, we're just in a lawyer's office then and you're passing, you're yeah. carrying a message to a, a girl that obviously struggling. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, I'm, I'm addicted to helping people. Yeah. I'm very passionate about it. My wife says to me, turn your phone off. I say, I can't. She goes, what do you mean? I said, it could be someone's life if I turn my phone off. I could be the phone call they make before they jump off the gap. Yeah. I could be the, the phone call they make before they OD on a shot. So I never turn my phone off. My phone's on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And we have a, a program where people have to pay to do it, and I do more people for nothing than I do for, mm. than I do for cost than yeah. I charge. People that can afford it pay. The people that can't afford it still get the same treatment. How good is that? If I can fit it in, I fit it in. If I can do it, I can do it. And if I can't, I say I can't. Yeah. That's, and I'll usually pass it on to somebody else. So what's the do- deal now, Ron? What are we up to, mate? What are you doing with your life? What's your plans for the future? <clears throat> My plan for the future at the moment is I'm writing the second book, which I think is the best book. It's all about recovery. It's about my journey through prison. I don't like the word redemption. I call it clarity. I wasn't doing stuff with a conscious mind thinking I was harming people. I was in denial. Mm. I wasn't consciously – I justified it's only cocaine. Only rich people snort cocaine. It doesn't kill anybody. It's just God's way of telling them they've got too much money. Yeah. That was my – I wouldn't deal ice. I've never dealt ice. I wouldn't deal ice. I won't – I know – Criminals that have been in the drug trade their whole lives won't deal ice. Yeah. They've just caught, they've just, no, I've actually heard stories where the cartels in even Mexico now are starting to say no more ice because it's just, it's ruining communities. But today I, I have clarity. I have a full awareness. I'm not a victim. I've never claimed victim. I've never, I've never played that card. I'm not a victim. Did I have the best upbringing? No, I didn't. Do I wish I had a better upbringing? Yeah, I wish my dad was a cop. I would have been the best cop in the world. Or I wish my dad had been a barrister. I would have been the best barrister, a doctor. I would have been a doctor. But he wasn't. He was a dirty old criminal. So I followed in his footsteps. And like most kids, we want, from my father, we wanted acceptance, love. And validation. And yeah. validation. So yeah. I tried to live up to his expectations. And I exceeded. I was a better criminal than he ever was because I'd done what I said I did. And I, and I said what I did. I've always been loyal and congruent and, yeah. congruent and I believe in that really big time. I've never asked somebody to do anything I haven't done myself. I'm not a. I'm not one of them people that – I really haven't got time for – and I don't deal with coppers and I don't I don't believe in – You're good about your long Ron. You don't fucking tell lies. Yeah, I you don't You get some like of these lies. blokes that fucking change the fucking scenario. Yeah. We know a few. Yeah, yeah. mate, honestly yeah. – it is what it is with me. I don't. I'm not here to impress you. I'm not here. I don't want to. I don't want to piss in your pocket and tell you it's raining. I just want to. I just want to tell my story, hoping that it helps some other kid go. This guy's the real deal, and he reckons it's shit. Mm. And if he reckons it's shit, maybe he's telling the truth. Yeah. And that's what I want to do. I want to help people. I want to. We've had enough shit to say it fucking don't taste good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, take our word for it. I like the thing bees don't explain to fucking flies that fucking honey tastes better than shit. Yeah. That's why I don't talk to a lot of people. Yeah. I'm a bit of a lone ranger. I'm very selective in I'm very selective in the people that I trust and that I hang out with. But I was also very selective in the dope I used. I wanted to use the best. Yeah. I didn't want to use the worst. Yeah. You know, I didn't I'd rather have a gram of pure than a kilo of shit. And it's the same with friendship. It's the same with spending time with people. Because at my age, 
you realize that time's the only commodity we can't generate more of. Yeah. You know, I have a certain period of time left on this earth, and in that period of time, I am going to help as many people as I can. On that note, Ron Ishwood, thanks for being on the stick up, brother. It was a pleasure with you. Thanks, Russ. Dead set asset to this world, mate, and I fucking know, dead set cherish your friendship. Same, brother. Love you, mate.